Hey everyone, Hoppo here. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get into the studio because of the COVID outbreak, so the quality of these episodes may not be as good as usual. But stay safe, and uh, we'll get through all this together. Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad, and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way, and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I chat with Laurie Williams, who was my mentor when I started as a lifeguard. Laurie talks about his time as a professional lifeguard and his passion for Bondi history after years of research. Then later on, Laurie joins me in the Beach Shack for Beach Banner, and I go to the mailbag to answer questions from the fans. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Laurie. This week in the Beach Shack, it's uh, a pleasure to have uh, Laurie Williams, Loza. He uh, was pretty much my mentor back in the day when I first started as a lifeguard. So welcome, Loz. It's very kind of you, mate. It's good <laughs> to be here. Good to have a chat. Always good to have a chat with you. Well, mate, all the uh, you know people have watched Bondi Rescue over the years, and I thought we'd go back to the start, you know, when it was... Uh, lifeguards at Bondi started and work our way through with the history and and up to where Bondi Rescue started so why don't we start uh go right back when the the first lifeguard started in 1913. Well it's pretty pretty simple actually because the uh the volunteer surf life saving clubs kicked off in 1906 1907 around that time Bondi being the first volunteer surf life saving club but after a few years, of course, they were only working on weekends, the volunteers. And uh, around about 1912, uh, the state government suggested to the local councils that they employ permanent lifesavers, they called them, to work on the uh, on the busier beaches, being uh, places like Cronulla, uh, Bondi, of course, Manly. And a year later, in 1913, Waverley Council advertised for a permanent lifesaver and uh, Dennis Dinney Brown was appointed in October of 1913 and became our first uh, professional lifeguard if you like. He worked by himself to give you an indication of what things were like back then. The sort of equipment they had was uh, just a life or they had reels, surf reels, but uh, being that he was on his own during the week he would have relied on members of the club being around if there were any around and if there weren't any around then he would have uh, he would have winged it and swum out and performed those rescues and that's just how it was for quite a few years he was closely followed by uh, Stan McDonald who was also later known as the King of Bondi mainly because of his feats um, in the water rescuing people he's probably our most uh, most honoured lifeguard if you like he's got uh, three bravery awards two of which were rescues performed uh, whilst there was a shark in 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 the immediate location so they're pretty brave men back then 
<laughs> and uh, their numbers weren't great. So, uh, look, they relied on... Um, there was a lot of personal courage, but they relied on good communications with the locals down there to back them up, give them support uh, when they needed to. Uh, our numbers sort of gradually increased over the years. Bronte professional lifeguards didn't come on board until the early to mid-1920s, and I think Tamarama probably late 1920s to early 1930s. But that, yep. uh, that's that's the, the history in a nutshell of where they started from anyway. Oh, mate, that's good. And uh, back then they had the piers, didn't they, off uh, at Bondi? So in 1928, the government saw that there was a, a massive influx of people coming down to Bondi. So, you know, crowds of Bondi uh, of up to 50,000 people that we know now, that's uh, that's nothing new and the building that they had there at the time, which was a timber structure called a castle pavilion, couldn't cope with the numbers. So they, in 1928, built a new pavilion, the pavilion that we know now, and uh, there were two piers coming out of that building. What the piers were, were a means of people going underground, avoiding the traffic in front of the pavilion, women and children on one pier at one end and men coming out of the pier, the other pier on the other end. Uh, look, they didn't last long. They went down as far as the high water mark. So, you know, they were quite an imposing structure and you used to be able to walk along the top of them. You know, it was, it was somewhat of a lookout. And on the northern pier, they had the shark bell, uh, which I believe back in those days was rung quite regularly. Come the, the Second World War, in 1942, the piers were destroyed by the Australian Army under instruction from the American Army because there was a great fear that the Japanese would use them as uh, an invasion point. You know, that the Japanese had been quite aggressive right throughout the Pacific and uh, that, you know, going back to Pearl Harbour in December 1941. So there was a great fear in Australia because of what was happening in Southeast Asia that we were next, right. we were going to be invaded. So they blew them up. Very little of them remains except for the tunnels, of course. Not much left, only, yeah, the tunnels. Uh, the tunnels. With the pavilion, though, there was also, uh, like, Turkish bars. And, and tell us a bit about the... What was in the pavilion back in those days? Well, it was it was a real one-stop shop, if you like. Its primary use was it was a place where people could get changed. There were cabins that they could hire. There were lockers they could hire. Um, it was segregated. You could hire a towel, kitty, a locker, and bathers because the bathers were made of wool. So, you know, no one wanted to get go home on a tram with a wet woolen costume. There was a theatre, there was a ballroom upstairs for dancing. There was a fine dining room upstairs, a palm court that served uh, soda and not alcohol. Downstairs, we had the Turkish baths, um, which were a series of oversized bathtubs, had hot water, hot seawater. Uh, the seawater was piped up from the south end and and uh, and, and um, discharged into the baths and they were heated up. That was a Turkish bath, actually. And there was a gymnasium and downstairs there was a large takeaway food outlet 
So it, it served a lot of purposes and it was um, just like it is today, very, very popular. And was the, as you said before, the crowds were still big, but was it an attraction for people to come down on weekends? Because I suppose a lot of people never worked in the weekends back then and they'd travel from what Paddington and the city and come down. <laughs> They did. They travelled from the um, they travelled from the inner city and then uh, from 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 further out. You know, we had one of the great mass transit systems with the tram, and there were regular trams uh, coming down to Bondi. So there were thousands of people coming down via tram because, as you could imagine, back then cars weren't exactly affordable. You know, you had to have um, the wherewithal to afford a car, uh, even though the car park at the front was was packed, most people came to the beach uh, via tram. And yes, the crowds were, you know, they were massive back then. The good thing being, unlike now, where there are people from one end of the beach to the other end of the beach, back then, um, you know, there was a lot of civil obedience, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, which basically means that, um, People respected the beach inspectors. They they were these godlike figures, these uh, you know bigger than life men, and, and most of them were in stature. Um, and what they said went. So bathe between the flags meant bathe between the flags, and you didn't see a lot of uh, swimmers down south. The only intrepid um, surfers or swimmers that went down there were local people. Most people were in the middle of the beach or up in the north end, swimming between the flags there. Now, Bondi's got a, a big history in uh, Indigenous. Maybe give us a, a quick rundown on you know, how the Bondi name came about. And, and also, the I know up on uh, you've done a lot of history tours as well. And you know, tell us a little bit about the history of the Indigenous. It's a, it's, it's a history that's quite often overlooked, uh, you know, not elsewhere, but uh, at Bondi it is. We've got a ceremonial um, site uh, on the golf course, which is a series of carvings that have both a spiritual and a um, practical purpose. Aboriginals here probably existed for thousands upon thousands of years. We're not exactly sure because we can't carbon date those um, sandstone carvings. However, it was the Gadigal people who around about the time of Captain Cook um, arriving on these shores in 1770, um, their numbers were probably anywhere between 50 and 100 people and they roamed quite freely uh, anywhere between Watson's Bay and, you know, way down to to Port Hacking and beyond. Uh, But they've got a wonderful history. And back in 1900, on the beachfront, uh, there was a, a major storm that uncovered an Aboriginal workshop. And when I say workshop, there were thousands of, you know, fish hooks and spear points, and, and, and um, they'd been discarded over 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 the centuries uh, down on the beachfront, and they uh, they came to be known as the Bondi points. Now you asked me about the name Bondi. Well, in the Eora. Uh, amongst the Eora people, I think with that particular language group that was specific to the Bondi area and beyond, Bondi or Boondi, spelt B-O-O-N-D-I, basically means um, waves or water breaking on rocks or the noise of waves breaking on rocks. But there is an alternative. Um, 
the Australian Museum records that Bondi or Bondi is the place where a fight with the Nulla Nullas took place. Right. So sticks, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that tradition that tradition lived on. Uh, you know, once the white fellas uh, moved into to Bondi, that. Uh, the place where the Nullanullas, uh, you know, the Nullanullas were replaced with other weapons. Yeah, well, I've, I've probably got a story I can touch on later when we're uh, we're working the beaches and the there are sticks coming out too. So yeah, the, it's, okay. it's, it's continued on in eras, eras after era, uh, mate. Also, uh, so from there, you know, as you mentioned before, the lifeguards were beach inspectors. Um, probably give us a, a bit of their role back then. I mean, I know uh, we did. Uh, for what we do now, but back then they were, had to measure bikinis and they had the line and reel. as a, a, a different type of lifeguarding compared to now. There was a lot of uh, regulatory work, or, or you know, back then it was called they were called bylaws, council bylaws. Um, so they regulated um, beach attire, which you know, back in the very early days and then into the 20s and 30s was really quite stringent. They were quite stringent laws as to, you know, what you could wear, what you could wear that was appropriate on the beach, you know, starting off, let's say, with uh, neck to knee costumes and, and men had and like a modesty skirt from the waist down so that when those woolens got wet, I, yeah, I can go into that. <laughs> they clung to everything, uh, whether it be a male or a female. So uh, they had a they had a modesty skirt. And I know that the men staged a protest in, in the early 1900s. They staged a protest at being uh, forced to wear these sort of uh, modesty skirts. And they all came down to bed, beach basically dressed as women uh, in different costumes. You know, as the years went on, on the costumes got skimpier the clothing got scantier you know i know that all blade law who was uh the chief lifeguard down here for many many years and in fact he's got the record of having served 40 years on the beach at bondi he had a, a notoriety for uh measuring women's costumes i know in the late 40s i think it was 1949 uh, uh, um a screen actress from the US came out here. Her name was Jean Parker, and uh, she wore a bikini. <laughs> now, that was amongst, you know, the first of the actual two-piece costumes. Prior to that, it was all about, you know, wearing one-pieces. And though they were diminishing in size, they were still a one-piece until Jean Parker took it on, yeah. came down, and uh, she got the warning and the heave-ho from the beach. <laughs> but that, that set in train change that needed to come but yes there was the measuring measuring the ruler measuring the side of the uh of the bikini and of course the bikini top had to uh had to had to cover up all the bits and pieces as well and men were subject to it as well i mean after the second world war when we had an influx of migrants from war-torn europe you know people from the balkans from uh from poland from italy from greece uh you know they wanted to flee the continent and come to uh, our sunny shores and there were a lot of men who thought it was okay to come down the beach and just you know get changed in their costumes on the beach so just throw everything yeah. off and yeah, so it was it was a constant challenge, and that was one of the many bylaws 
that they had to uphold on the beach. Um, rowdy behaviour, whatever interpretation you might have of that, it changed over the years, but rowdy behaviour, dogs on the beach, lost children, uh, you know, some of those things um, you guys are still dealing with to yeah. this day yeah. because you are it, we are it yeah. when it comes to, um, you know, what goes on on the sand and what goes on in the water. Yeah. And, of course, surfboards. Yep. They became more popular. They were they were massive, you know, 16, 17-foot plywood um, boards. Originally, it was the solid redwood or uh, sugar pine boards. But as the number of surfers grew, when surfing became more popular, it put us, we at Bondi in particular, in a very unique situation where the late 1940s again, around about the same time, 48, 49, uh, council wanted to ban the boards altogether because they were, by that time, they'd gone from the solid redwood boards, just a handful of surfers who are mainly surf club members, to those really, really big plywood boards, the um, toothpicks, they called them. And they just didn't mix. It didn't mix with the swimmers. It became quite dangerous. So council wanted to ban them all together. A group of the boys and a couple of girls uh, put a petition to council to um, give them an area at the south end of the beach where there weren't many swimmers anywhere, anyways. And that put us in the unique position that we still have, by and large, to this day, where we have an area at the south end for the board riders and the rest is for swimmers and, of course, softboards yeah. and boogie boards. Yeah. Mate, also, uh, Bondi... Uh, had water running from Rose Bay all the way through. Now, was that fresh water or was that uh, seawater? It was seawater. There were creeks. Because we're in a valley here, there was also fresh water that fed down with the gradient, you know, coming down places like Bondi Road and Birrell Street, and they would empty into creeks. The creeks would empty into lagoons. So the stormwater channel at South Bondi was actually what remained of an old creek but you're right there was at one many well you know millions of years we're talking about the waterway from the harbour uh, ran right through to Bondi so that was a waterway and Dover Heights Vaucluse right out to Watson's Bay was isolated it was an island and gradually you know, with the depositing of sand by the uh, by the river or the waterway over the years, um, we 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 had that sand flat that goes through, which filled that that waterway, and we're talking you know transition of millions of yeah. years. So yes, it was. Mate, uh, Bondi was nicknamed Scum Valley. When did that come around? <laughs> I, I I reckon it was in the 1980s, um, and it was uh, you know the South Bondi board riders who uh, who gave um, Bondi the name Scum Valley because we are in a valley down here, <laughs> if you like. Um, Scum Valley was just their way of uh, defining who they were and where they came from. And it when I, you know when we say Scum Valley. It sounds derogatory, but they were quite proud of the fact that, you know, Bondi in the 80s was quite run down. Still, still quite, still pretty, um, pretty strong working class roots, and they were really proud of that, you know, and that um, that gave them a lot of motivation. So Scum Valley was like, 
yeah, they were quite proud of, you know, being the children of, of Scum Valley. Uh, mate, also the um, water quality was quite bad around that period. And I remember growing up as a kid surfing that there'd be, uh, you know, sewerage and, and uh, raw sewerage floating around and you duck dive and come back up, you'd have to hold your breath that little bit longer because you didn't want to swallow anything that's <laughs> bobbing around yeah. in the water. Um, the, the Bondi cigar, also <laughs> a.k.a. Uh, the blind mullet. <laughs> I've seen them bobbing around <laughs> along with condoms and God knows whatever else. There was everything, wasn't there? But uh, they put together a protest, though. Do you remember that? There was a late 80s. Uh, Turn back the tide. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit late, about that? Late 1980s, yeah. Yeah, look, um, I think people had had enough. It, um, we put up with it for a long time, and I guess it, would, it was just one of those things that was a given, you know, this is what happens when the currents, you know, bring all the discharge around from the bottom of the cliffs uh, where the sewage treatment plant was. You know, personally, I, I caught hepatitis um, surfing at North Bondi as a, as a teenager. So, yeah, I was a victim of, of that polluted water. People had had enough and, um, you know, there are a number of, you know, big name bands including Midnight Oil and I could go on, Chrissy Amphlett, um, that got together and staged a protest concert and that, that because of the thousands of people that turned up for that concert, um, I, I'm sure that that's what, uh, push the state government to make the necessary changes to the water quality by improving the technology. Mate, and up to today, it's it's beautiful now, isn't it, that the uh, water quality's just uh, spectacular. And there's definitely a link between the improvement of the technology and so the improvement of the water quality. There is a link to that and the price of real estate going, <laughs> real estate going through the roof. Yeah, I remember. Because no one wanted to live down here when the water was that quality. That's um, right, yeah. No, I remember no one wanted to live there. You could probably buy a, a place on the point for about 200000 Now they're going for about $10 million. So, yeah, it's... Uh... Oh, the benefit of hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, also, uh, you know, COVID hit, and, and that's the only time in my career that... I've seen Bondi closed, but it was also closed back in the wartime. And, and I've seen photos that you've shown me um, where the beach was barbed wide. That's correct. Back in 1942 and, um, you know, it was in that year, uh, May going into June, that we had an unwelcome visit by um, several Japanese submarines and three... Uh, and they launched three midget submarines who um, came into Sydney Harbour and fired off some torpedoes, unfortunately hitting a, um, a ferry that had been um, sequestered by the Navy and it killed, you know, just over 20 um, naval personnel. Um, so around about that time, or probably before that actually, they had decided to barbed wire off... Um, a lot of beaches, not just Bondi, but Bondi was barbed wired off. There were concrete anti-tank traps in the sand. Uh, there were machine gun posts manned by military personnel um, at either end. I believe the main steps were um, also destroyed. Um, they were blown up by dynamite. When they blew up the piers, they managed to blow up every window 
in every shop along Campbell Parade <laughs> and in Bondi Pavilion. So they, um, yeah, they they went a little bit heavy-handed on the uh, on the old dynamite. <laughs> there were the beach technically wasn't open, but there's lots of evidence to suggest that beach inspectors were working at that time. I've done a fair bit of research in that area and and found quite a few newspaper articles which show that you know there were several mass rescues there are a number of other rescues people were still getting down to the sand Uh, they were climbing in and around the barbed wire they were going in off the either end on the rocks (laughs) so they were still getting down and enjoying themselves but apparently uh, the biggest stat statistic uh, to come out of the war years was uh, first aid and it was people getting cut up on the barbed wire trying to get down to the water. <laughs> Doesn't sound like much different to when they they fenced off Bondi for COVID and uh, they're all climbing around and going on the rocks. So it's yeah. just history repeating, isn't it? Um, Don't deprive people of their liberties, <laughs> particularly when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, Dr Pacific. Yeah, that's it. Jumping in the ocean. <laughs> well, mate, you mentioned how many rescues were going on. There's probably a most famous one, Black Sunday, uh, back in the day. I mean, we've done a lot of rescues now, but our equipment uh, is a lot better than what they had back then. So maybe run us through that day on, on Black Sunday. Well, you, I, I know that um, it has since been dispelled the fact that um, you know, many times they were saying that um, sandbank collapse. Well, sandbanks can't collapse. Dr. Ron Rob Brander has, has openly stated that it would take a nuclear blast to collapse a sandbank. So it wasn't a sandbank collapsing. What had happened was over that weekend in uh, February of uh, 1938, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure I'm right. I think it was February 6th on that Sunday. That whole weekend they'd, um, they'd had a big surf running and um, there was a disagreement between the head lifeguard Tom Mara, the head beach inspector, and uh, and Orb Laidlaw, who worked under him. Orb had worked on the Saturday, and come Sunday, he advised uh, Tom Mara, chief beach inspector, that he felt that they shouldn't have a, have a set of flags in the middle of the beach because conditions were so big up there that, um, you know, you've got to remember back then that the bulk of the swimmers in the water couldn't swim at all. So what had happened was Tom prevailed with the argument that they should have a set of flags in the middle of the beach, which, you know, even to this day, you try and have flags up there because that's where the bulk of your people come down once they get off public transport. What actually happened were there were um, a set of three waves that followed one one upon the other in quick succession. So the volume of water with those waves lifted the people on the sandbank so that they lost their footing when all that water uh, surged up the beach when it all backwashed out you had all those people who had lost their footing that backwash took those people out into deeper water so there was mass panic probably you know in the vicinity roughly of 250 people in need of rescuing uh, five five males five men died on that day they drowned but lifeguards were at the they were at the forefront of organising the surf clubs. Fortunately, both surf clubs were about to have their afternoon surf races. So they had, on, on top of the patrols that they had on the beach, they had a lot of um, 
they had a lot of qualified people down there and they used surf reels they used um rubberies you know the rubber floats that they used to hire out of mcdonald's hire uh, they ran up there you know stan mcdonald gave as many people as he could many surf club members um, rubber floats to to throw to people so they could hang on to them um, surfboards were used um, it, it was a miracle that with what they had that they saved so many people uh, there were quite a few resuscitations amongst the people that were rescued and as I said unfortunately five people did die on that day mm. yeah it was an amazing um, rescue from everyone and, and the community coming together to help out was something that uh, well it still happens today you know if we have a major incident there's a lot of people around that that come in and help out and I think you know that from your experience, um, having worked in your early days, um, one out, as I have done, that you rely on those connections, those local connections that you have, whether it's board riders, surfers, or surf club members, you rely on them for support, just as much as they rely on you for direction, as the person managing the beach, you rely on them when, when things get tough. Well, coming to that, then you started your lifeguard career, what, 1978, was it? 78. Yeah. Uh, tell us a bit, the, the early days, and then we'll go into, uh, you were there when you know I started, and yeah, we'll, uh, into the 90s. Well, when I started, you know, we still had, we were still carrying, you know, a few of those leftover procedures from years gone by. For example, we still had reels on the beach. We never used them, never used them. We had rescue boards by that time. Rescue boards had come in to professional lifeguarding at Bondi, Bronny and Tamarama. They'd come in, we think, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, so it was more a ceremonial thing. And we were still, every Monday, having to go around and service these reels, you know, oil all the moving parts, put the line back on where people would pull the line off, uh, cut the lines for you know, for whatever reason, you know, washing lines at home. <laughs> so every Monday was spent, uh, you know, there would have been half a dozen or more of these reels on the back of the beach. We also went around to uh, the Merc, which is at the bottom of the golf course. It's a long way down uh, on rusty, rickety ladders to service the life boys that were kept in boxes. So the life boys were attached to ropes. Again, the fishermen were constantly cutting the ropes, yet the life boys were there for, for, the, for the purpose of rescuing fishermen in trouble. Uh, we had one there. We had one at the boot. I think there was one somewhere else. But, the, you know, there were these um, leftover procedures that we were still having to do. My first year, we still wore a one-piece costume, <laughs> albeit, albeit we did have a pair of white tennis shorts with the beach inspector badge over it and we used it looked like a singlet top but yeah. when we had to do a rescue shorts came off it's just a one-piece costume <laughs> oh, can you imagine yeah. can you imagine the guys these days one having the, the the oil up the the lines and then also wearing that type of costume geez it would be hard work well, you know how fashion comes around, you know, it goes around in a, in a big circle. It wouldn't surprise me if they actually took to the idea of wearing a one-piece. So any of you savvy entrepreneurs <laughs> out there that can hear this, uh, yeah, the, the, the one-piece is on the way back in, baby. We might suggest that for uh, 
yeah, the next uh, next uniform run. Do you get the one? Yeah, <laughs> I've still got mine somewhere, somewhere in the vault. But yes, we yeah, and the thing is, and and this is going into your time on the beach in the very early nineties, was that we were working with um, limited numbers. We had a rubber ducky which we rarely used. It was used for body retrieval. We were still doing a lot of ordnance or, or, or regulatory work on the beach. Bikes and skateboards weren't a lot allowed on the promenade. So we had, you can imagine with young guys and young girls, you know, you can imagine the battles that we had with the locals, yeah. uh, be it their dogs on the beach or skating along the prom. Yeah, fun times. Ball games, massive. Yeah, massive in the day there. Punishing, punishing. <laughs> and then the topless. Um, the topless, when they uh, they had the ban on topless and then they decided that they couldn't control it, so they said, right, uh, when was it? The late, yeah, it was in the first couple of years, maybe 1980, said, okay, we're going to move the topless right into the south corner. And we had the stormwater tunnel, a stormwater outlet coming out. We used to call them the binoculars because they were two big holes in the wall. And they came out between the first and the second ramp, or it, the stormwater did so there was a massive channel that was gouged out by the stormwater you know when there was a big discharge and we had to ensure that the topless stayed on the other side of that (laughs) now the challenge was that you were allowed to go topless as a female on that on the south side of that channel but you had to put your top on and walk all the way back to the middle of the beach to go for a swim between the flags. We had to spend our weekends <laughs> roping. We had to rope off yeah. between signs, rope off an area so that no one went into the water. And what they were doing was going around us under the rope, <laughs> diving in off the rocks. I think that the, in my career, the greatest decision that was made from up above was to lift the ban altogether. <laughs> I can't tell you the amount of abuse I copped as as a what twenty twenty one year old yeah, probably yeah. then. <laughs> I learned quickly, <laughs> which we did. I mean, I remember I started as you said. You're working on your own. I mean, Bronnie, Tamarama, Bondi. You'd start at six a.m. on your own till about yeah. nine, and then uh, the other guys had come on. So you had to learn quick. It was those days, and you, as you said, you had to know the locals. You had to know the board riders. You had to know the surf club guys, because you never knew when you needed the backup for them to help you. That's it. You know, it just, it was second nature, wasn't it? You know, you knew, you, like I, knew all those guys and girls, and we knew that when we needed them, you know, they were there. Um, And there were many occasions when we did need them. And even if we didn't, we knew they were on the beach waiting to help if, if, if we needed that. And there's, I mean... Today, we've got so much uh, more staff. So I think we've lost that now. There's not as much to, to know the community because we've got enough people working and, and you can back each other up at, at work. Yeah, that art of communication, it's, uh, it's so important. You know, desperate, desperate times call for desperate measures. Mate, the other uh, thing which was pretty big and probably the biggest thing that we've, we've dealt with at all was the Olympic Games down at Bondi and I remember it took, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was over six months to build it, this massive 10,000 seat stadium and it gives us a bit of an insight into that period. Well, we 
had to move everything. We were moved. Our tower had been demolished. Uh, it was deemed as being unsafe, the old tower on the north groin. We were in a side shed at that time, but we also had our office in the pavilion. But um, council had to move out, move everything that we owned out of that pavilion, out of Bondi Pavilion. Uh, we moved into a compound down next to the skate park and within that fenced compound, we had everything. We had, you know, I think four, five site sheds that covered, you know, change room, showers, you name it. We had uh, sea containers for to store our quad bikes, our jet ski, and then we had another... We had, I don't know if you remember this, but we had two temporary towers on the beach. Yeah. I don't think we ever set foot in those things. No, I don't think we did. Do you remember? They were, they were scaffolded yeah. and they were covered, you know, they were covered over. But we had one on the north and one on the south side of the uh, the main arena. And then, of course, we had a site shed up at North Bondi, yeah. which was outside the where the, where the fitness area is today. Yeah. So, um, yeah, pretty amazing time. And I think what was... The most surreal experience back then, um, we didn't really have that many rescues, but um, I remember that the gold medal match between the Australians and the Brazilians, yep. we were in that, we were in the in the site shed where we did our observations. We had a little radio going. We could hear the screams from the stadium, but we're having to listen to the actual coverage yeah. in a side shed, what, a couple of hundred yeah. metres down the beach. Yeah. It was surreal. Oh, it was surreal. And I interviewed Kerry Potas, who was one of the uh, the women that won that, and um, she was saying that uh, only if she knew that, that we were sitting in a, in a shed just 100 metres away, she said um, she wouldn't even know that that was happening and the crowd that was in there was just enormous. And to this day, she comes down to Bondi every single uh, year on the same day that they won that gold medal with, uh, wow. with Natalie Cook and they and they sit and have a, uh, a glass of champagne. And, of course, when I do my history walks, you know, we go down that tunnel uh, which used to end in the pier that is no longer there. And that's the tunnel that uh, you guys use to this day to store your equipment. But that's the tunnel that the girls would have come down as they entered the arena, yeah. as did every other athlete. Yeah. Oh, it's a great time, wasn't it? Uh, and the weather was perfect. It was, I think it was 30 degrees on some of the days. It was just amazing. I remember that well. It was amazing. And, and you know, the water... The water quality is always good around that time of the year. And, yeah, it was just a, a really good event and a really good time. Wait, a couple other things is uh, give us a bit of the history on Mermaid Rock. There was uh, some mermaids put out on those rocks at North Bondi. Yeah, a couple of um, couple of local girls. So uh, take you back to 1960 and uh, Lyle Randolph was the sculptor and he approached the council seeking permission to put a couple of mermaid uh, sculptures up on the on the big rock that had been washed up there back in 1912 1913 um, and council and the local clergy local churches were vehemently opposed to these semi-naked statues being put on the rock and their reason was that uh, 
they believed that men would stand up on the point at Ben Buckler and leer at these um, inanimate sculptures because they were topless. Anyway, he thought he did his homework. He said, well, I'm going ahead. I'm putting these sculptures up on the rock because uh, high water mark is out of your jurisdiction. And he claimed to have approval from the state government authority that looked after the, you know, the ocean and the waterways back in those days. So they were there. uh, Essentially what they were, were they were concrete, but they were covered with a bronze coloured fibreglass and they were pinned and pinned and concreted into the top of the rock. But one of them didn't last long. Uh, University of Sydney uh, Engineering School, they used to have a day, I can't remember what it was, I think it's called Commemoration Day, where the universities try to do them, outdo each other with pranks. So students from the engineering school at the Uni of Sydney uh, took one of the girls off the rock and um, someone gave them up. Uh, she was later found at that school unharmed, of course, and not damaged. And by public s- uh, subscription, she was put back on the rock. But in 1974, we, um, we had almost cyclonic conditions up and down the coast of New South Wales. Um, you know, a lot of damage done to the beaches and infrastructure along the beaches. One of the girls was severely damaged and one of the girls disappeared. Uh, they were based on, one was a local girl, Lynette Willier, yeah. and Jan, I can't remember Jan's last name, but uh, Jan Brody it might have been, but um, Jan's damaged uh, sculpture is up in Waverley Library on display in a Perspex case. And uh, Lynette's statue is somewhere in the deep blue sea. (laughs) Rumour has it, rumour has it that a local fisherman may have fished her up. They may have pulled her up and she's sitting in someone's garage somewhere. But, you know, that could be just urban myth. (laughs) You never know, mate. Around here, it could be sitting there somewhere. Jan Carmody. I'm sorry, Jan, if you're out there or... It was Jan Carmody and Lynette Willier. All oh, right, all right, Loz, mate. We could speak forever on uh, the history, but uh, I think I'll have to get you back in again and uh, and do some more on uh, the history of Bondi and also the lifeguards. Well, you and I have got a bit of history. I think there's a few stories. It depends what, what sort of rating your, uh, your podcast has. But uh, oh, can I give myself a plug? Yep, I do have a. Um, I do have a Facebook group and I also have an Instagram group called Bondi Historian where I share quirky and um, unique stories about the history of, of Bondi. So get on board, have a look. I keep them going every every couple of weeks. Um, I hope you find them interesting. Oh, I'm sure they will, everyone, uh, especially the, the ones that listen from overseas. You know, They may never ever get to Bondi, but just listen to your chat, they'll be able to really get an insight on uh, what happens at Bondi over all those years. It's got an incredible history and, um, you know, there's pages and pages of it. Uh, and, yeah, it's it's great to be able to – it's great to have the opportunity to, to sit down with you and have a chat and talk about some of those things. Mate, great to have you in the Beach Shack, Loza. We'll catch up and do it all again soon. Sounds good to me. Cheers, mate. How good was it learning the history of Bondi? Thanks, Laurie, for coming in and giving us your wisdom. Next up, 
Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack for Beach Banter, we've got uh, former lifeguard and legendary historian, Laurie Williams. Loz, how are you? Good to be back here. I'm good, mate. How are you? That's good. But we, mate, over the years, and we still do, people that have watched Bondi Rescue, they've seen uh, a few pranks being played on the guys. And you've got one, though, that sticks in my mind back in the day. Uh, tell us about that. It had to do with blue bottles. It certainly sticks in my mind because it's stuck somewhere else for a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we had a lifeguard, uh, no names, um, who uh, who used to uh, part of his training uh, regime in the morning was um, he liked to go into the old Bondi Boys Club, uh, and for people that don't know, um, you know lifeguards usually train every day. Uh, normally their water water related uh, it's water related training but there are days when we train in the local gyms and the surf clubs anyway this particular guy um, he had a he had a ritual I'll call it a ritual he loved to go in and punch the bag hit the speed ball hit the floor to ceiling ball strong as an ox you know he would have been an Australian champion in the ring um, but in the lead up to this he had a blender in our office our, our office was a one-stop shop. It had a first aid room, office at the front, change room, lunch room in the back. We used to store boards in there, used to put the quad bike in there. It's amazing what we did have in there. But he would uh, religiously um, put milk into his blender, then he'd put wheat germ in, he'd put you name it, and he would throw it in there, banana. Um, everything that you'd feed to livestock would be, um, you know, short of hay, lettuce. (laughs) I'm exaggerating. Anyway, it would all be there in preparation for him to come back and then hit the blender button and blend it up, and that would be his post-workout meal. So, you know, we were used to shit-stirring each other, and you can testify to this, I'm sure. You're a victim, and you're on the other side of it as well. (laughs) Cop both both sides of it, yeah. You've been a perpetrator. Um, So... I decided to add some of our blue bottle solution. And back in the day, that was like uh, Reckitt's Blue. It was It was a blue powder that uh, added to whatever we added, to, added it to water generally. Uh, it would turn it blue. Um, and I put, uh, I think I put a tablespoon of this stuff into his... Uh, into his blender <laughs> so when he came back he's uh of course no one used blueberries back then so that was no excuse but i messed with his i messed with his uh his mix anyway he sat on that he came back he, he copped it you know he wasn't happy but he copped it and i let it go you know we all thought it was funny at the time we thought it was hilarious actually <laughs> But he stewed on it. We didn't know he was stewing on it. So what he did um, was he waited until we had a, uh, a whole heap of blue bottles get washed in. He then went down to the water's edge. He picked, hand-picked a number of blue bottles. He cut the stinging tail off them. He dried them on a coat hanger, hung them up, <laughs> dried them. He then threaded the blue bottle stinger into a needle he then found a pair of my speedos which were blue <laughs> he threaded the blue bottle tail 
through the crutch of my costumes. <laughs> the effect that had was that, of course, I had no idea. So I put these costumes on. He did it to two pair of my costumes. So, you know, he wasn't going to miss me. <laughs> and, of course, you know, a nice hot day in summer, walking along with your Speedos on and your white uh, lifeguard shorts, and suddenly you're getting this itch. <laughs> and you are just tearing your groin apart, wondering what's happened to me. Have I got? Have I picked up some sort of sexually transmitted disease here? <laughs> this is not good. And it got so bad with me scratching my crutch on the promenade that they had to tell me. And then they told me just how devious <laughs> and how much how much effort he went to to get to me for what I'd done to him. And I still haven't forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's a great story. Yeah, it was a, it was a beauty. Like I say, it it, it 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 all these years later, and I still remember how you know walking along and someone one of the guys tapping me on the shoulder, and it wasn't him. One of the guys saying, "Look, we can't we can't let you do this anymore. It's <laughs> dreadful. You're walking along, and you suddenly start scratching yourself." And needless to say, the costumes got binned. <laughs> Mate, that's one of the greatest uh, pranks I think that I've, I've heard over the, the years. That's up there with Kerbox's uh, uh, commercial that they made him do, and he thought he was doing a, a Japanese commercial. But oh, that was a classic. Yeah. That's uh, mate, the uh, blue bottle story. That's a, a legend in itself. Well, if the if TV had if the if the the show had been around at that time, they would have got they would have the ratings would have gone through the roof. Just filming me for what two weeks walking along scratch, walk along scratch. <laughs> you're lucky you pick up the name Scratchy nickname. <laughs> itchy and yeah. itchy and scratchy. Itchy and scratchy. <laughs> All right, Lozbo, thanks for uh, stopping into the beach shack and uh, giving us that story. I've got plenty more. Look forward to it. <laughs> Up next, I answer letters from the fans. And this week's mailbag is from Josh, and the question is, has the COVID lockdown affected your work as a lifeguard? Well, Josh, it's uh, it does to a certain extent, but uh, we still turn up and, and work day-to-day, our same hours, uh, which we're very lucky because a lot of people have lost their jobs or or have to work from home. That continues because we've got the the beach open. There's a lot of board riders that enter the water. Also, a lot of swimmers come down for exercise. So we keep the beaches open for people so they can help their mental health and come down and exercise. So apart from uh, crowds from international not turning up or Uh, lockdowns uh, with the borders around Australia, we're probably, our crowds are down to usual. We're probably down around the five, 10,000 a day on busy days. So apart from that though, we're uh, all as normal and uh, working our job as we always have. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.